Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The life of Clarina Nichols and her work in the early women's rights movement of the United States has been greatly overlooked. As one of the country's first female newspaper editors and stump speakers, Clarina Nichols spoke out for temperance, abolition, and women's rights at a time when doing so could get a woman killed. Unlike other activists, she personally experienced some of the cruelest sufferings that a married woman of her day could know. In her pursuit for justice, she traveled westward, facing all of the challenges of being a single mother and a woman's rights activist of her day with good humor and resourcefulness. Clarina Nichols is also the grandmother of Grace Carpenter Hudson, a well-known painter in the Ukiah and Potter Valley area of Northern California. She was portrayed by Diane Eikhoff in this Chautauquan-style interview, and we began when I asked Clarina Nichols about her childhood. I had a very fortunate upbringing and a very favorable childhood. My parents were devout Baptists, and I became a Baptist myself at age eight. That was the one church in New England at the time that actually paid some attention to women. Uh, there were Baptist women preachers. There were uh, women on the rolls in Baptist churches. And so there was a somewhat different feeling in the Baptist church than in the more traditional congregational church at that time. Well, looking back to your childhood, um, now you would be, if I may, 66 years old. Mm-hmm. And you're telling us about what happened when you were eight, long time ago. What are some of the elements, the religious instruction that you assumed beginning as a young girl and into your adolescence and later maturity that became driving forces in your life? My Baptist faith really informs my beliefs to the present day, particularly Christ's teachings uh, in the Golden Rule and as uh, as demonstrated in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't hold much with theology. But I would say that the other large influences in my life were, of course, my parents. I had very progressive, civic-minded parents. Um, my parents were from the wealthier segment of town, I might say. But they always cared about the other more unfortunate people in town. My father was the poor master in town. And What does the poor master do? The poor master is the person in town to whom the poor in town come with their petitions for aid. And he listens to those petitions and decides whether he can help on behalf of the town, whether he can assist them. And often my father allowed me to sit in a quiet corner of the room while he heard the petitions of the poor. And often these were women who had desperate stories. And I listened to those stories and learned from them that there was another side of life than the happy childhood that I was living. And this is in Vermont, which uh, has fairly extreme weather. Snowbound in the winter and uh, sometimes very buggy and hot in the summer. Yes. So the poor people had difficulty in food, lodging? 
Well, everything, all of, all of the above. They would have had, uh, women in particular, had difficulties because a woman's residence went with the town and went with, went with her husband's <laughs> residence. And in those days, uh, there, were, there was no state aid for the poor. There was only town aid. So it was very important as to whether or not you were a resident of the town in terms of whether you were going to get aid or not. And let's say you were living in a town in the town of Townsend with your husband and then he decided to take off to some other place and and without you now you no longer have a resident male to depend upon nor do you have uh, nor can the town help you because if your husband is not a resident of the town you are uh, you are unqualified for aid. So many of these women who came to my father for help could not receive it. And that, uh, that I found very, very sad. Plus, so, if they, uh, I would like to say one more thing here. Uh, the, the very poor were often put up for auction. And this means they were actually put on the auction block and sold to the lowest bidder. So the town would give this bidder a certain amount of money to care for this individual or this family. Well, you can imagine that the lowest bidder would not be too interested in providing very anything except for the very minimal, uh, minimal thing. When you say sold, are you talking in terms of slavery, indentured servitude? It's, it, it wasn't really said that it was that, uh, but in essence, really, I, I think it was very close to it. These uh, individuals uh, would be expected to uh, contribute whatever they could to the household in terms of, of helping out or doing work, but um, the town would be supporting them. The town would be giving money to the person who got the bid. So looking ahead now, Let's move in your life. Mm -hmm. You went to Western New York, were in other areas, and you spent a significant part of your adult life in Kansas. Mm -hmm. uh, during the time that Kansas became a state, and you participated in the Constitutional Convention that established the laws, the fundamental laws of the state of Kansas, tell us about that. Well, I came to Kansas in 1854 at the time that uh, many people from all over the country were flooding into Kansas, uh, into Kansas territory. It was not yet a state, of course. And this was on account of the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Bill in 1854, much to the objection of all northern abolitionists, because this meant that Kansas, uh, the fate of Kansas, would be settled by the people who lived there. So if enough people came and voted to have slavery, it would become a slave state. And if enough people voted the other way, it would be a free state. So many people in New England and all over the north flooded into Kansas who were opposed to that. Not that everybody had genuine principles for moving to Kansas. Many people came just because they wanted a piece of cheap land. But there were people on both sides of the issue who were adamantly uh, supporting one cause or the other. When you came there, you were an experienced public speaker. You put your ideas out there. Yes. You advanced the ideas of suffrage for everyone. Yes. Black, white, men, women. Yes. What were the successes that you had? Well, 
I think we have to measure these things maybe a bit differently. We have not achieved suffrage, much to my uh, regret. Uh, I would love to see that happen, but that has not occurred. But we have had some successes. I was the first woman to address the Vermont legislature in 1852. I presented our petition for school suffrage, actually, at the time. Uh, that did not pass, but I was the first woman to receive a hearing we had we have had to go about this in a way to convince people person by person man and woman because as many women are opposed to suffrage as as men are why uh, do you think that is why do i think women are opposed to suffrage for their own sex yes it's a curious thing isn't it but i i believe that they have have been indoctrinated with the with the sentiments of the time as much as the men have been. And these are women who do not question what traditionally has held and often are not even really working in their own best interests if they were looking at the long view. So it's an uphill battle. It's an uphill struggle. In addition to um, working for the right for the right of women to vote, you are also strongly opposed to alcohol and the consumption use of alcohol. Yes, I am. Why? Alcohol is the root cause of so many evils in our society. And that goes from poverty in impoverished families to domestic abuse to uh, fornication and the uh, abandonment of children, the ruination of homes. All of that, most of it, a good deal of it, can be attributed to alcohol. Well, are you talking about overconsumption or just even uh, one one sip? Well, I'm afraid one sip leads to a second sip and so on down the line. So I'm opposed to even one sip. Do you think you'll have success with that? Oh, well, we've the... already had success. We have a law in Vermont forbidding the sale of alcohol. There are abuses, of course, but we have seen the consumption of alcohol decrease markedly since that law was passed. We are working for other laws uh, such as that as well. I went to Wisconsin in 1853 and helped that state, of all states, achieve uh, temperance of a sort and to give uh, women who were married to drunkards the right to their own property and wages. When a drunken husband was involved, a woman can now petition in Wisconsin to have control of the property and control of her children. I think that's an advance. Yet a woman who is married to a person who is not a drunkard doesn't have the same rights. Could she still petition? Oh, uh, well, she can't under those laws, no. I mean, that's one way of, of tackling things, of course. And, and, of course, you must know that I'm in favor of property rights for all married women. I think it's a terrible disgrace that women are not able to hold on to property that they have earned for themselves, that once they get into a marriage that they are expected to give this over to their husband's control. That is a great travesty of justice. Clarinda Nichols, tell us about the differences of opinion as to whether women should be given the right to vote along with Negroes. When the 15th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War, the 15th Amendment, passed in 1870, essentially split the women suffragists in half. Some of them went with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and organized the National Women's Suffrage Association. 
Others stayed with the old guard Republican abolitionists and formed the American Suffrage Association. I, however, decided to keep uh, a membership with both organizations since I could see the point of view of of both of them on this matter, and I believe that any progress was better than no progress. What do you think was the cause of the failure of women not being included in the 15th Amendment? Frederick Douglass called it, and other abolitionists said this was the Negro's hour. This was the time to concentrate on getting Negroes suffrage. But not but Negro I believe, women. No, not Negro women. No, and, and we made that point to them. We very much did make that point with them. I believe they were looking for a big influx of male voters in the Republican Party, if you want to know the truth. And they were afraid that if they allowed women to vote, they weren't quite sure which direction we would vote in. But they were quite sure that, the, that a new influx of black voters would all vote Republican. You moved to Potter Valley in Northern California. What year did you come here? I came in the, at the end, extreme end, of 1871. What brought you here? I understand your son, Aurelius, was living in Potter Valley. Yes, I have a son who's in California who has been here since 1857. And uh, we have, of course, kept up a correspondence, and he has told me many favorable things about California, especially its mild climate. He he and his wife, Helen, both encouraged me and my younger son, George, and his wife and children to emigrate to California, where they said there were great opportunities and wonderful weather. Have you found those opportunities? Well, it hasn't been a great disappointment, but it was a very, it was a sad thing for me to leave Kansas. Uh, I had built my reputation in Kansas. A great deal of work had been done, and I had a great many friends and roots there. So it was difficult for me to relocate at this point in my life. But I have found California to be a wonderful land as well. Well, I have, I have heard you say that uh, your heart and soul and your home was in Kansas. Yes. Has that transferred to California and to Potter Valley? I don't know how many times you can lose your heart and soul. I don't know if it's once. It's like falling in love, isn't it? Uh, perhaps that can happen many times. And for me... I have enjoyed each place that I have moved to, and I can say that California feels very much like home for me now. I can't imagine going back. As a woman who has spoken publicly in many states, uh, taken a leadership position, uh, living in uh, Northern California now in 1876, the centennial of the United States, what are your feelings about the changes that need to be made in a local level, a state level, and a national level? Well, I, I continue to work for woman suffrage on the national level, although I believe that that is going to be accomplished state by state rather than through the, at the national level. It seems clearly that that's not going to happen. We have trusted various administrations to carry that forward, and it has not occurred. But 
I haven't given up. Uh, we are wandering in the wilderness, it seems, at times, but I'm, I'm still concerned with that. There are a great many other issues that I'm concerned with, but I'm unable to do much about. I'm concerned with prison reform. I'm concerned with the fate of the insane. I am uh, concerned with the uh, populations of, of the local population of Indians. Um, and uh, the fate of education is always on my heart. In this edition of Radio Curious, we are doing a Chautauqua interview with Clarina Nichols, who was a suffragist, a women's rights advocate, born in Vermont, active in Kansas in the 1850s and 1860s, moved to Potter Valley, California in 1871, and became a pioneer. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Clarina Nichols... You traveled extensively from Kansas to Vermont to New York to Washington, D.C., being involved in political activities of the day. What, were the, what was the daily life like when you would go those distances? Well, travel is always exhausting and, of course, is not as, uh, in those days, is not as easy as it is today. Uh, we did a lot of travel by stagecoach. We traveled on the canals in New York State. Uh, and those are a great improvement over taking the stagecoach because with a canal ride, you can travel at four or five miles an hour and uh, glide easily over the water as opposed to a bumpity bump bump in the stagecoach. But uh, many times when the train first came into, into uh, being in Vermont, I immediately became a regular rider on the train. I'm very fond of trains. But a great deal of time was spent traveling. Uh, and getting to a place was, was not very easy. And often, when I was on a tour, I was speaking every day. So every day except uh, usually Sundays. Sundays we would take off. But it would involve traveling. It would involve finding a place for lodging, some kind soul who would take put us up for the night. I remember one night in which I was put up in a home with the hired men. And I slept in a bed uh, uh, with surrounded by men sleeping on the floor and rolled up in, in bundles. Uh, so that was a little uncomfortable. Uh, and when you were speaking most every day, you were talking yes. about equality, women's rights issues. How were you received? I would say that I was received quite respectably for the most part. Of course, there are always those those journalists who insist on trying to to uh, make fun of those of us who are for women's rights. They call us Amazons and hybrids and. Uh, other names that I shall not mention uh, in polite company. Uh, but for the most part, the reporters tried to report on what we were doing, and in that way they did spread the message, you know. Uh, the New York Tribune in particular covered all of our conventions, and the New York Tribune was being received by people across the country. So like it or not, they were spreading the word far and wide. Picking up on what you were saying. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, they were. Uh, they, they, uh, all of the newspapers in in New York were very good about covering the women's rights movement, and uh, local newspapers as well. It was always it was a 
it was a, a novelty for a woman to be speaking in public. So therefore, we did get coverage wherever we were. When I was in Wisconsin or when I was in Ohio or Pennsylvania, did there was you, always coverage. Did you shout? How did, did people sh- hear you in a large room? Well, I have a pretty strong voice. And sometimes I would wear my voice out. It would be exhausting, of course. But uh, I did my best. I mean... You know, people would listen attentively. They would be quiet for the most part. Uh, Well, Clarina Nichols, I want to thank you for joining us in this Radio Curious interview during um, your lifespan, uh, as if we were talking in 1876. And I know that you like to read. Mm -hmm. You're somewhat of a prolific uh, reader and writer. Mm -hmm. Is there an interesting book that you could tell us about that you would recommend? Well, I've read recently a very interesting book. It's called The Sexes Throughout Nature by Antoinette Brown Blackwell. She is one of my co-women's rights uh, advocates. She's from uh, New York, and she has, is the first woman to be ordained as a minister in the Protestant sex. She was ordained as a congregational minister in 1853. But she has tackled, she has taken on the subject of both religion and science. And she is, in this book, looking at Mr. Darwin's uh, theories on the evolution of the species. And and in particular, his thoughts about uh, men being the top of the hierarchy. Uh, She believes that men and women are basic and and equal equivalents. In nature. Well, Clarina Nichols, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And Diane Eikhoff, I'd like to welcome you. Thanks. It's nice to be here. What drew you to impersonate and present the character of Clarina Nichols? I discovered Clarina Nichols at a museum in Kansas. I was immediately struck by her story. And the more I dived into it, the more I wanted to know. That led me to come to California twice to research her story. I went to Vermont twice, New York, Wisconsin, Ohio, uh, just following this amazing woman's story. And her connection to Ukiah and to Grace Carpenter Hudson, the artist, is? She is Grace uh, Carpenter Hudson's grandmother and A.O. Carpenter's mother who is Clarina Nichols' son. Yes, and that was her, uh, A.O. Carpenter was uh, Clarina's son, middle son, second son, by her first husband. That's why they don't have the same last name. And your background and training is a historian? No, my background is in English. Uh, <laughs> I am, uh, uh, I am, however, back in graduate school, halfway through a master's program in history, and that is due to Clarina as well. Uh, learning about this, uh, learning this story, uh, sort of brought me back into the schoolroom. So, when you portray Clarina Nichols, what are you hoping to do? I'm hoping to inspire people. I'm hoping to tell a story that hasn't been told before. I'm hoping to open up an era that people haven't seen before. But most of all, I think she really has something to say to people today. Which is? 
I think she's really, she's talking about freedom. She's talking about, uh, she's talking about equal rights, of course, for everyone. She's talking especially, I think, about tolerance. And in a society like ours, which is greatly polarized at the moment, she is a person who is able to transcend all the divisions in society. And she really did manage to keep her cool and win converts who would normally have been opposed to her. And I think that's quite remarkable. And I think it's the kind of dialogue that has to go on today among people who are on different sides of, the, of various issues. How do you see that dialogue being presented today from the various different issues that we have? I don't see it. I, actually, I don't see it being done very well. Um, it's mostly done in sound bites on television. <laughs> uh, so I, the Chautauqua style of performance gives one a chance to dig, to go a little deeper and do something a little deeper, uh, even than a, uh, a two minute segment on television. So that's why I enjoy doing it. And I love the questions I get. The interaction with the audience is the best part of the Chautauqua. It's always wonderful. Well, Diane Eikhoff, I want to thank you for joining us as Clarinda Nichols and as yourself on Radio Curious and ask you the same question that I just asked Clarinda about an interesting book that you've read lately. I am in the middle of reading The Looming Tower by Lawrence Wright. This is the story of the, uh, of, uh, the beginnings of Al-Qaeda, and it's absolutely fascinating. Diane Eikhoff, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Clarina Nichols has been portrayed by Chautauqua artist Diane Eikhoff. The book that Clarina Nichols recommends is The Sexes Throughout Nature, Pioneers of the Women's Movement by Antoinette Louisa Brown Blackwell. The book that Diane Eikhoff recommends is The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11 by Lawrence Wright. Five hundred editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free to listen, download, and share as you wish. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. 
or snail mail at 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah. That's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>